Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to uh, continue with the Gospel according to St. Matthew, this time using chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. The story has an important background to it, first of all. But we'll look at the question that Jesus uh, proposes to the priests, the chief priests, and the elders of the people. And then we'll see what kind of a situation that, uh, that they, he, he has put them in and how they find, try to find their way out of it. So it says, Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, What is your opinion? A man had two sons. He went and said to the first, My son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the boy answered, I will not go. But afterwards he thought better of it, and he went. The man then went and said the same thing to the second son, who answered, Certainly, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the father's will? So they said, the first. Jesus said then to them, I tell you solemnly, tax collectors and prostitutes are making their way into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you, a pattern of true righteousness, but you did not believe him, and yet the tax collectors and prostitutes did. Even after seeing that, you refused to think better of it and to believe in him. So that's the gospel. Now where is that coming out of? Well, that's coming out of when Jesus has reached the point, basically, in his public encounter with the, uh, with the officials of the, of the synagogue and the Sanhedrin, when he realizes that nothing he says or do does is going to make any kind of a difference, whether he realizes that then or whether he wants them to realize it. Uh, it it's hard to tell. Because before this gospel, they had uh, asked him by what authority did he perform his miracles, by what authority did he, for instance, cleanse the temple, and so on and so forth. And Jesus, instead of answering him, he uses a very typical rabbinic kind of response, and he says to him, well, let me ask you a question. And answering a question with a question was how the, uh, the rabbis debated. And so he said, was John's baptism of divine or of human origin? And so there they were. If they say divine origin, then the logical response to that is, well, then why didn't you believe him? If they say human origin, then they place themselves over and against a very large crowd of disciples of the Baptist who had believed that what he did was of God, that it was a prophetic uh, reality in the midst of the world, and that it was a continuation of the great prophetic tradition of Israel. They can't answer, because either way they answer, they incriminate themselves, and they judge themselves, and they condemn themselves. So they simply said, well, we don't know. And uh, he said, well, then neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. And then we move from that into this particular gospel. So once he has established they refuse to answer, then he gives them another question. And that other question was about the son who said he, go, who said he wouldn't go into the field, and then he did, versus the son who said he would, and then he didn't. And he said, which one did the father's will? 
basically what Jesus is talking about here, and it's clear to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth, it's pretty clear that he's referring to the children of the covenant. They were given the gift of the covenant through Abraham, and then through, uh, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Moses, and so forth. And yet they were constantly disobeying. If we recall, if we go back through the Old Testament and we see, you know, that um, something terrible has happened, a prophet arises, and the prophet says to them, um, do this, and they, oh, yes, we'll do whatever you say. Yes, well, you know, we will obey the Lord. We will do this, we will do that. And then they, the moment is gone, and then they go back to their old ways again, worshiping Baals or, or whatever it is that they're doing to be unfaithful to the Lord. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the elders of the people here is how he puts it, you're never going to give the right answer because you refuse to submit to the will of God. You refuse to submit to the word of the prophets. You refuse to live faithfully in the covenant. And while you say, yes, 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 Lord, ultimately you don't do it. And so there was then the Gentiles. And the Gentiles whom the Jews despised, and we saw, for instance, in, in the uh, story of the Syrophoenician woman, that they referred to them, to the Gentiles, oftentimes as dogs. It was the same kind of disdain that they held for the Samaritan, who had drifted away from the, from the covenant and uh, had kind of mixed, eclectic type of Middle Eastern religion that did include things from the covenant, but was not exclusively faithful to the Lord God. So then Jesus is referring then to the first son, who says, I will not go. He becomes then the image of the Gentiles. Those are the ones who rejected Judaism, and those are the ones who Judaism rejected. They were kind of the enemies of Judaism throughout. They were the, they were the peoples of Pharaoh, and they were all along the way, the tribes that refused to, to adhere to sayings of the prophets, to obey the Lord. We have great, you know, dark characters such as Jezebel arise out of the Old Testament, how she influenced her husband Ahab, you know, to worship false gods and so forth. The Jews looked down upon them. And this is one of the reasons, and they looked down upon them kind of as riffraff. It, it was not just religious, but it was, it was everything. And uh, they just saw them as really lowlifes. And so Jesus is now going to use this example when he presents it to the Pharisees. They have no choice but to choose the Gentiles over the Jews. Yeah, certainly it's the one who did what the father asked or did as well. Point made, they had to conceal the point. And so in this particular rabbinical encounter, Jesus comes out very strongly, and he comes out having them in a position where they can do nothing but feed into the line that he's feeding them and feed in, in to the, the paradigm that he's, that he's presenting to them. And then he goes back, and now he recalls, of course, their, their criticisms of him. Because remember that uh, you know, he goes to sinners' houses, he goes to the home of Zacchaeus, he goes to the home of Matthew. Uh, we know that a, a woman of the streets comes in and anoints his feet and so forth when he goes to the house of a Pharisee. And so that's why he said, but I am tell you solemnly, the tax collectors, the prostitutes are making their way into the kingdom of God before you do. 
And that's what he's saying. He said, you have just chosen them in this choice that you made. They are the ones of initial refusal, who when, in fact, they do encounter the living God, when they do encounter the Word of God, they therefore are converted. They therefore change, and their life is changed, and they become then disciples of the new covenant. This is a constant embarrassment to the chief priests and the elders because what Jesus is saying to them, first of all, he's saying, if you answer my first question, you're a hypocrite. If you answer my second question, the answer is obvious. You cannot say that the one who refused to do what God asks is the one who did the Father's will. So you must choose the one who said no. And then he identifies the one who said no with the Gentiles, with the ones who are not Jewish. And then he, then he makes it even more particular by pointing out to them the prostitutes and the tax collectors and so forth. They came seeking the kingdom of God. They came looking for the kingdom of God, and they came and they were willing to be converted by the presence of the Messiah. They did all that. What about yourselves? You still haven't done it. You're still challenging. You're still unbelieving. You're still kind of hostile. And so he said, for instance, for John came to you, a pattern of true righteousness, but you did not believe him. And so John the great prophet appeared, and you did not believe him. You did not care about him. You found him to be kind of an enemy. And as a matter of fact, your cohort, your, your uh, comrade in arms, Herod even killed him for telling the truth. And in doing that, you raised not one single cry of, resi of resistance or of disappointment or of anything else. Instead, you just accepted the fact that the Baptist was dead. And uh, some of you were probably even present at the banquet when it happened. So he says, so you just threw John to the side of the road. You just had nothing to do with him. You didn't pay attention to him. You didn't respond to him. You did not in any way try and be supportive of him or even become his disciples because actually he was a prophet. And when, I've, when I asked you that, you couldn't answer it because you knew you would incriminate yourselves. And then he goes on and he says, you did not believe me, yet the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. The crowds came out from Jerusalem to find John in the desert. They received his baptism. And there was a great deal of repentance and conversion because of the work of John among the sinners, among those who initially had said no to God. And I, even after seeing that, you refused to think better of it and to believe in him. So you did not even, in the midst of all of this, you did not even then, when you saw the sinners converting, when you heard the power of the word, when you saw the righteousness and the goodness that came from his mission, when you saw all of that made no difference to you whatsoever, he says. You still rejected him. You still kind of tacitly stood by and let him be executed by Herod. You were glad to be rid of him because he was a threat to the security of your position within the society. And so he said, even when you saw the goodness of John, and even when you understood the good, you just rejected him because uh, you refused to believe. And it goes back to this thing of this kind of cultural thing here. First of all, he's pointing out the infidelity of Israel. 
But then he's, he's, he's pointing out the obduracy of the, uh, of the leaders of Israel. He shows how they set the example and how they, in fact, are the ones who are particularly egregious in their rejection of the Lord and their rejection of the prophetic tradition because they have created, in a sense, and this is something we should be sensitive to, they have enculturated the leadership of the covenant into a symbiotic relationship with the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. And their position within society, their political clout, their social status, their well-being, their financial well-being depends on that bond between themselves and the occupiers that will, in fact, then secure them in their position and secure them in their way of life. And it will not challenge them. Look what happens when someone challenges them. Look what happened with the Baptist. He was beheaded. Better they live comfortable, politically correct lives than to be resistant and run the risk of experiencing what the Baptist experienced. And so, as we've said so many times, this gospel becomes kind of a paradigm for all ages. This is, we, we dare not lock the meaning of scripture up simply in the first century. It is essential and very important for us to delve into that first century, to know exactly what it's like, to know exactly what Jesus is doing, to see what he's telling us, what he's teaching us, and to watch the human dynamic as it responds to him. That's very important for us. But then we can't leave it there. We have to then carry it with us in every age, in every generation, in every place, in every time. This paradigm of the debate between Jesus and the rabbis, this becomes for us now a prism through which we have to look at our own world and look at our own time. We have found, for instance, that in the story of Christianity, this has been a constant and an ongoing problem. This became a problem of the relationship of the popes and the kings in the Middle Ages and of the, uh, the clergy and the, uh, the nobility wrapped up and tied up into the feudal system and so forth. It's always been kind of an issue. It became a very dramatic issue in the Protestant Reformation when instead of this kind of tense uh, relationship between church and state, it became then you just handed over the, uh, the authority, the administration of the church to civil authorities. Now, there's books written and said that say, therefore, the Protestants secularized religion. That isn't true. Within the immediate moments of the Reformation, within the 16th century, there was no sense of a division of Christianity within the society. Everyone was Christian and every institution was peopled and populated by Christians. And so within the Christian community, you shift the emphasis from the parish church to the city council, from the, the religious to the civil authorities, you're still keeping it within the Christian community. This becomes problematic for the Protestants when, in fact, Gemini of the Christianity begins to break down within the Christian community. When we enter into the age of the Enlightenment and when we move forward 
into this time where agnosticism, agnosticism is bastiism, uh, subtle forms of atheism and so forth become very, very significant components of the community. And they are definitely in their roots and in their intention and their inspiration no longer Christian. Then, however, the symbiosis between church and state continued and in so doing did eventually, of course, end up with a, secular, a secularization of uh, religious authority within a society. We see it, for instance, in our own American society. We see, for instance, the most radical of the, uh, the mainstream Protestant uh, denominations rely very heavily on the cultural guidance of the, govern of the government and, and tend to mock uh, and to reflect its values, its practices, and so forth. Well, this goes all the way back to the Roman Empire. It goes all the way back um, to the gospel that we're talking about today, when in fact those who have created too close a relationship with civil authority are the ones who therefore seem many ways to so accommodate themselves to that civil authority that they no longer seem able to represent the, the core of the word, the core of the kingdom, the true proclamation of Jesus. Part of the reform within the Reformed churches, some of the evangelical reform, and some like the Wesleyan reform of, this, of the 18th century, and so forth. All of that, in many ways, tries to move away from that and go back to kind of a, a more... Uh, a more biblical, a more prophetic kind of Christianity. And uh, that's what we find, for instance. What we find then is a struggle in both Catholicism and in the evangelical church to desire to be have a harmonious r a relationship with civil government, but they find it very, very difficult in, to do so. Um, we certainly have a division within Catholicism of those who would rather follow their political ideologies than they would follow the Word of God. They, they can't conceive of dividing those two things. And that's partly, that's a little bit of the symbiosis of the Middle Ages, but it's more the influence of Reformed religion and the American development of the American government and American society. It's an interesting thing that those elements of Protestantism that oftentimes did challenge the government were the reform elements. They were not, they were not the, the standard magisterial churches. They were the reformed elements. For instance, there's a book by Stephen Carter called The Culture of Disbelief, published somewhere in the middle 90s or late 90s, in which uh, he traces the development of the secularization of the Constitution and saying basically throughout the 19th century that it was particularly Methodism that exercised it a very, very strong, uh, which was a reform movement, a Wesleyan reform movement from the Church of England, and that uh, exerted a tremendously strong moral influence on the operation of government, especially in relationship to abolition, in relationship to uh, the, uh, the alcohol prohibition, uh, prohibition of the early 20th century, and so forth. And yet, it seems, in according to Carter, at least, that after the after the Second World War, the the influence of religion began to dissipate, 
and uh, that we constitutionally began to move more and more toward the Enlightenment ideals and more and more away from the fundamental Christian ideals. Be that as it may, it's probably true, it's probably a very valid thesis, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, where are we? Where are we on that scale? Where do our values come from? Do our values come from our political leanings or do our values come to us through the church? And if they come to us from through the church, then then we stand with the great sinners of Jesus, with Jesus and the gospel. Those guilty of much wrong, I'm sure, all of us, and yet nevertheless, ultimately, bending our will and opening our heart to the word and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That there are those who, because the government contradicts the church, choose the government. And that happens within Catholicism itself. We find that in the great contemporary moral issues. We find the, the full Catholic organizations that become pro-abortion become really the arms of civil society. They have nothing to do with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And uh, they can say what they want, think what they want, but de facto they stand accused in this gospel exactly as the chief priests and the elders did. That if Jesus is God, if Jesus is God, if you believe that, then you must believe his word. And you must believe the fact that in Matthew's gospel we see so clearly the establishment of the rock, the establishment of the apostolic college of teachers, and the establishment of an institutional church dwelt in by the Holy Spirit from Pentecost on, which guides against error the apostolic college in the ways of faith and morals as it navigates its way through the vagaries of time and through the vagaries of history. If we believe that, are we to say, therefore, the church has no issues within itself? Of course it has issues within itself. Of course it is riddled with sinfulness, just as Jesus' life was riddled with sinfulness. He carried all of that with him to the cross, and the church carries that with her on her pilgrimage of passion to the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. Does that mean that she would deceive us in matters that pertain to the depth of the faith? No, she never has. And despite the rapid politicization of the papacy in all sorts of different ages and times, that somehow or other we have managed to emerge intact and with the integrity of the gospel. That's what this gospel is challenging us with. That's what this gospel is placing before us. And so in the way that it does that, it challenges each and every one of us to make these kinds of radical decisions within our own life. It becomes more and more difficult within the church to be faithful members of the church without an increasingly interior radical commitment. And that doesn't mean that we live radically in the world with all sorts of, you know, decided to form into gangs and terrorize people and all no, that's, that. That's the other side. No, the radical is in my heart. The radical is in my soul. 
I will live my life as authentically as it is humanly possible for me to do in conformity with the teachings of the church, in conformity with the word of God, in conformity with the presence of God who enters into my life sacramentally over and over again and takes up within me then a very significant and important dwelling in order that I might overcome, struggle to overcome my own weaknesses, my own faults, in order that I might be a more faithful disciple to Jesus Christ. That's where we stand in the contemporary world. And that's what this gospel then, speaking powerfully to us, tells us this is what the Lord is asking of us. He is not asking of us to be the Pharisees, to be the chief priests, to be the elders, to have this symbiotic relationship with the American government. He's not asking us that at all. He's asking us to be faithful to him and to live the covenant to the very best of our ability, acknowledging our smallness, acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging our failures, and trusting in the mercy and the grace of Almighty God to guide us to the end of our days and into eternal life. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he